Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. It's a Thanksgiving holiday weekend, which means we have a holiday clips episode for you. Many years, we tried to reshare one of our favorite author-driven podcasts of the year, and we've got just such a show this week. Let's have a listen to my May conversation with Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore, the author of Romare Bearden in the Homeland of His Imagination, which was published by the University of North Carolina Press. The book examines how Bearden's address of his native South, he was born and initially raised in the Charlotte, North Carolina area before his family was effectively forced to leave the South, was informed by the vagaries of memory and even imagination. Gilmore is the Peter V. and C. Van Woodward Professor Emerita of History at Yale University. Her previous books include Gender and Jim Crow, Women and the Politics of White Supremacy in North Carolina, 1896 to 1920, and Defying Dixie, The Radical Roots of Civil Rights, 1919 to 1950. Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore, after the break. Big news. After two-plus years of pandemic, live audience Modern Art Notes podcast tapings are back. I'm thrilled to share that we'll be taping a program with the artist Sheila Prebright at the Georgia Museum of Art in Athens on Thursday, December 8th. Showtime is 5.30 p.m. Bright's work is included in the Georgia Museum of Art exhibition Reckonings and Reconstructions, Southern Photography from the Do Good Fund. I'm looking forward to talking with Bright about all kinds of things including her hashtag 1960Now photographic series, which reflects on the fight for racial equity from 1960 to the present day and combines portraits of social justice activists, past and present, with documentary images from recent protests in the United States. That work has been on view at museums and galleries all over the country, including in Atlanta, New York City, Durham, Charlottesville, and plenty more. And this fall, you can also see Wright's work in Free as they want to be, artists committed to memory, at the National Underground Railroad Freedom Center in Cincinnati. The exhibition is part of Cincy's Photo Focus Biennial. Sheila Pre Bright on the Modern Art Notes podcast on Thursday, December 8th at the Georgia Museum of Art. Hope to see you there. Transformative Arts presents Adornment Artifact, a series of exhibitions across Los Angeles from Baldwin Hills Crenshaw, West Adams, Downtown LA, Chinatown, and the Pacific Palisades. These sister exhibitions highlight the Nubian diaspora in local contemporary art in response to objects in Nubia, jewels of the ancient Sudan from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston and at the Getty Villa Museum in Malibu. Adornment Artifact features more than 60 LA-based artists, including Alison Saar, Lauren Halsey, Umar Rashid, and Amar Fala. See the artists' creations, then discover their inspiration at the Getty Villa exhibition on view through April 2023. Explore beautiful jewelry, metalwork, and sculpture that reveal the wealth of creativity and splendor of Nubian culture, past and present. Plan your visit and book free reservations at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Alberto Giacometti, Towards the Ultimate Figure. This Turing exhibition showcases an ensemble of 60 masterpieces from the post-war years, 1945-66. to 66. At a time when abstract art was starting to become ubiquitous, Giacometti became a defining artist of modernism as he reasserted the validity of the figure. See his work in 12 thematic sections that illuminate his focus on the human form and the development of his abstract figures. Now on view through February 12th at the MFAH. Learn more at mfah.org slash Giacometti. Support for The Man Podcast comes from the Pulitzer Arts Foundation 
an art museum in St. Louis where ideas are freely explored, new art is exhibited, and historic work reimagined. This fall, the Pulitzer presents Barbara Chase Ribu, Monumentale, The Bronzes, a major monographic presentation examining the artistic vision of the Paris-based artist, novelist, and poet Barbara Chase Ribu. On view from September 16th to February 5th, 2023, Monumentale brings together some 40 major sculptures from the 1950s to the present day, accompanied by 20 drawings. The exhibition illustrates the artist's highly original visual language that is fundamentally global and transhistorical, with influences ranging from Italian Baroque architecture to West African bronze making. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, 1948 to 1960. This is the first major museum exhibition to investigate the early work of one of the most celebrated artists of the 20th century. The exhibition tells the overlooked story of Lichtenstein's early career and establishes a deeper understanding of post-war American art. The landmark exhibition features loans from museums and private collections, presenting about 90 works from the artist's fruitful formative years. Many of the paintings, drawings, sculptures, and prints will be on public view for the first time. Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, examines the period before the dot, that is, Lichtenstein's signature use of Bende dots in his pop paintings. Roy Lichtenstein, History in the Making, 1948-1960, is co-organized by the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, and the Colby College Museum of Art in Waterville, Maine. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, Picasso Cut Papers. Devoted to a little-known yet foundational aspect of Pablo Picasso's practice, Picasso Cut Papers spans the artist's full career, with many of the nearly 100 works on display for the first time. Showing a new side of a familiar artist, the exhibition features some of Picasso's most whimsical and intriguing works made on paper and in paper, alongside a select group of sculptures in sheet metal. Picasso Cut Paper is on view at the Hammer Museum through December 31st, 2022. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. And we're back. Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Your new book, Romare Bearden in the Homeland of His Imagination, starts with an interesting fork in the road. You address that you're going to kind of write between what happened in Bearden's life going back to when he was young and what he believed happened within his life. Because your subject is inevitably responding to what he knew or thought he knew rather than to latter-day scholarly factuality. So when considering Romare Bearden, why is all that important? First of all, it's really interesting in and of itself because it's the way that all of our memories work. We think we know things about our past that we don't. We think things to be true, but it's exceptionally interesting for Bearden because people have generally thought of his work as autobiographical, when in fact, he has sometimes incorrect memory, factually incorrect memories, and a very scant memory of ever living in the South, which a great deal of his work is about. On the other hand... Can I just jump in to note that he moves out of the South when he's, what, five or six years old? Yes, they move. I think he's five. He could have still been four. The date that they left is 
not clear, but I think it was probably in the fall of 1915. It would have been five. And they become new people. They go to Pittsburgh and Harlem and become new people. The other reason, though, that it's really important to me is that I was interested in his imagination, in what he thought, how he commingled memory and his artistic practice and his imagination of what his background had been like or would have been like. And so I think I say at some point in the book that it doesn't matter if his memory is correct or not. What matters is that it reveals constituent parts of what goes into his work and what we appreciate. I will say it's not uh, the best practice for us as viewers to take him literally. He didn't pick cotton. He, he's not all the things he represents, but he's interested in all the things he represents, which is equally valid. I don't want to race ahead, but is there an example of an artwork that you think might be a really good illustration of that? Of that? My favorite is Liza in High Cotton, which is actually in the book. And we mentioned the name of the Southern Art Museum here. But when that was exhibited in said museum, they depicted it as Bearden playing with his friend Liza in a cotton field at the family cabin when he was growing up. Bearden couldn't quite place to begin with who Liza was. He called her a little girl who kind of played with me. My research, it's a little iffy. I think she was probably an older girl who lived near him who was his babysitter. They lived in downtown Charlotte. And the fact that we're nary a cotton field existed (laughs) at Bearden's time or Liza's time, I think that his great-grandmother or grandmother with whom he lived would have said something like, he said, where's Liza? And they said, would have said something like, well, Liza can't come. She's in high cotton. Liza's in high cotton, which means you're doing well. It doesn't mean you're in the cotton field picking the cotton. So that's the kind of risk that you take if you look at this and think that he knew those things. Another example was at one point, the mural in the Charlotte Public Library spoke that it was the view from his family's cabin. And his family lived in a two-story Victorian home in downtown Charlotte. They owned a whole semi-block of property, three houses and a grocery store. And they didn't have a view from a cabin because they didn't have a cabin. The things we're talking about here are kind of about how Bearden's art is both a valuable source for for somebody writing a biography-ish, and also how it is a source that requires interrogation, shall we say. And I think in the book, you even note that, that his art is a more important source for you than really anything he said, in part because Bearden, when he engaged with people in correspondence or in interview or in his own writing during his life, was pretty happy to go along with the mythologies that had been built up around his biography. Why is that? Why was why was he just like why was that fine with him? Well, this is sort of a roundabout way to get to what you're talking about, but I think it's really important for the book. Bearden is a person who did not live a life of celebrity. His mother for most of his life was more famous than he was. He 
held a day job, was a social welfare worker. And he lived a long time. He became successful when he was in his 40s and 50s. So therefore, he has a lot of ground to make up for that is undocumented when people come to interview him. A lot of ground that he hasn't really thought about for public presentation. So he had a kind of, he could be really spontaneous in interviews, but most of that was about the work or about a more current kind of situation if he was asked. But he had a kind of set piece about his background. So you can read scores of interviews and not really get scores of different memories of his past. At the same time, he, that's true for most of us. If you read the interviews that people give about their lives in the archives, they have a pretty pat story because life is long and interviews are short. And if you want to get the meaning of your life through, you have to have your points down. I was interested, you know, there's documentation. There's a lot of stories about him in newspapers and uh, there, there are some letters. There's not an extensive private collection of Bearden's letters, but they're letters in other people's collections. But I was interested in actually using the art as an archive for myself. I was fed up with words after writing books and books, and I was not fed up, but interrogating how historians like myself could go to archives extensively for years, write a book, and think they had nailed down the story, think they had captured the story, particularly with the explosion in the past decade of the internet. You're always finding something new. There's always a different variation on whatever there was in the archive. And also particularly doing African-American history, which I've always done, the archives, quote unquote, that were collecting until maybe now, certainly until the 1970s and 80s, were not collecting. African-American memory, literary production, correspondence, et cetera, in the same way that they were collecting that of white people and elite white people. So new social history methods and an explosion of available information on African-American lives through a variety of sources opened up for me things that weren't open to Bearden that he could never have checked. It would have taken him months to find his family on a census microform reel or something like that. But I could just go to Ancestry and do that. So a lot more was available to me. At the same time, I had Mary Schmidt Campbell's excellent biography, which enabled me to have a, a sort of spine, a sort of linear trajectory of his life. And I had worked on his three generations of his family in earlier books that I wrote. They had come to my attention. So I was interested. I actually knew how to find his mother, grandmother, great-grandmother in a way that he didn't know because I had written histories of the 1890s, of the 1920s. And he had only, he was only born in 1911. So in some ways, my grasp was a little longer than his. That's a good transition to kind of us building the base for Bearden that you do in the book. Who were Henry Kennedy and Rosa Catherine Cosprey Kennedy? 
And how did they migrate from enslavement to prosperity in, in Charlotte, which we've started talking about? Henry and Rosa Catherine Kennedy were Bearden's great-grandparents. They're extremely important to his life because they were very powerful people, but also because he lived with them. He and his parents lived with him in that family complex that I described until he was five. Henry Kennedy, whom I believe I have found in the census, grew up in Chester, South Carolina. He was an enslaved person, as was Rosa, but Bearden wasn't sure that was the case. In interviews, he says, well, I don't know. I I think Rosa was a Cherokee Indian. Everybody from North Carolina, white and black, says they're part Cherokee Indian because many are. And I think he had a difficult time imagining his fabulously dignified great-grandfather ever being enslaved. I'll start with Henry. Henry was in the 1850 census. He appears as a mulatto slave who was enslaved by Major John Kennedy, who was basically never really a major, but took the honorific, and was essentially the founder of Chester. He came from Antrim, Northern Ireland. He was a staunch Presbyterian, as that band of immigration into Piedmont, North Carolina, was founded upon. And I am pretty sure that he was Henry Kennedy's, either his father, although he would have been old for that, or his grandfather and his son, George Kennedy, was Henry Kennedy's father. Why? Not simply because Henry Kennedy was mixed race, but because he was literate and it was against the law to teach slaves to learn how to read in South Carolina, yet someone taught him to read. He could have been a spontaneous reader, but probably he was so literate that he was taught to read. The other reason that I think he was related to the Kennedys is because after Fort Sumter, they sent him inland to Augusta, Georgia, either as a paid servant remaining enslaved to the white Kennedy family or sold him outright as a person to Woodrow Wilson's father, who was also a Presbyterian minister. So the two of them, the Kennedys and Woodrow Wilson's father, Joseph Ruggles Wilson, would have known each other. So there he is in Augusta, where he meets Rosa Catherine Gasfrey, whose family is from Charleston and in a similar situation. They were enslaved to Francis Gaspray, a Portuguese carpenter in Charleston, who was almost certainly their father. Rosa Catherine Gaspray's mother and the family were moved to Augusta, probably also because of the Fort Sumter being exposed. And so during the Civil War, Henry Kennedy and Rosa Gaspray Kennedy, Rosa Gaspray Mary, and their daughter, Caddy, their only child, is Rumery Bearden's mother. They are incredibly entrepreneurial people. Henry Kennedy becomes a federal male clerk on the railway, which was a job that had the same pay rate. There was no black and white discriminatory wage for that. And he was on the route between Augusta and Charlotte, which went through Chester. Ultimately, he took the best 
Chance and moved his family to Charlotte. He had a federal pension by the 1890s. They owned a grocery store. He drove a wagon, a hack, a taxi around Charlotte and was a complete leader in the Black community. Rosa was active in the Women's Christian Temperance Union, ran the grocery store, and I encountered her in my first book, Gender and Jim Crow, as a major civic figure in the Black community, as was their daughter, Caddy Kennedy, who married Richard Bearden, who was a self-supporting harness maker who lived in Charlotte. In some ways, the key event of Bearden's life is his family's effectively forced migration out of the South. They will move to Harlem. And it's something both you and Bearden's other biographer, you've you've already mentioned Mary Schmidt Campbell, both of you identify it as pivotal in the family narrative and also pivotal to Bearden's future and the work he will make. You know, I guess in short, why did the Beardens migrate? You know, an interviewer once asked Bearden himself, why did your family move north? And he said, well, I guess they were looking for opportunity as other people were in the Great Migration. So for me, that's a conundrum because they have opportunity. When Bessie Bearden, who lived in Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Atlantic City, marries Howard Bearden, she moves to Charlotte with him, and they are immediately established among the Black elite in Charlotte. The family makes enough and has enough business ventures to support everyone. So they didn't have to leave. They had opportunity. And the reason they left, I believe, was because of Bessie and Howard took Romery downtown they dress, always dressed him. And there were people alive in Charlotte when I lived there who remembered Bearden in this outfit. They dressed him as they dressed young boys of the upper class in the South in a dress, white socks, Mary Jane shoes. And then when you got to be a certain age, four or five, you were breached. You, you started wearing breeches, pants. Generally short pants, and then you went to long pants. So they took Bearden downtown shopping. Bessie went into a store. Howard is standing outside with Romare, whom I still call Romery, as the family did. So, but Romare and a bunch of white men surround him, thinking that this black man has kidnapped a young white girl, a white toddler. Bearden has blonde curls when he's young. He's very, always very light-skinned. And so Bessie comes roaring out, and she was formidable in any situation at any time, dispels the notion that that is not her son. This is not crazy, because Black families in Charlotte, I found several others who took in white children and were paid by white families to bring them up in their own homes. But also because there was an, a national vice scandal. It was called the white slavery panic. People believed that the only reason that white women went into prostitution was because they were kidnapped by gangsters or black people and forced into prostitution. So history really converges that day. And very shortly thereafter, they leave Charlotte. Bearden recalls leaving Charlotte. He knew something big was up, but he wasn't sure what. And he recalls that Liza went to the drain. And I believe 
I've only been able to put him back in Charlotte, which claims him and even kind of still glosses over the fact that he didn't grow up there. I think he only came back once when he was about seven until the Kennedys were dead. He came through in 1940, but he was born in 1911. So it was a traumatic event. Bessie Bearden having, she was born in North Carolina, but moved to Atlantic City and Pennsylvania. And she was simply not going to be Jim Crowed. I'm sure it was her decision. So they both went to Pittsburgh to stay with her family for a while so they could go. And they left Bearden there and went and established a home in Harlem and brought him there. I want to come back to Pittsburgh in a moment, but before we kind of get to the Charlotte-Pittsburgh split, as you look at Bearden's work, which of course was made long after he left North Carolina, are there impacts or references to that migration that you see in the work? Absolutely. And that's why I was so surprised that he wasn't terribly reflective when asked that question in an interview. Oh, I guess they were just going up you know, for opportunity, it was a time of migration. There's a wonderful collage called Tomorrow I Will Be Far Away. Most people have depicted this as a Black Southerner looking North and dreaming of the North. But I really think that it could also be the opposite. It could be a Southerner who has already moved North looking back at his Southern memories. There's such longing The haziness of the woman working in her garden to the right is so suggestive of Southern gardens rather than Pittsburgh or or Harlem. And that painting is all about memory. I don't believe to me that it's about anticipation. It seems to be about memory. My favorite depiction of contemplating the journey is called Watching the Good Trains Go By. It's got an assembly of characters standing in front of the railroad tracks. That's the main line, the main Southern railway line. When I stood in the position where Bearden's great-grandfather's house was, that would be what you see when you look from the front porch. You see the big train, you see the hills in the background. He has a cast of characters in this collage, all of whom could jump on the train, who are anticipating or not, going or staying. And what a wrenching decision that must have been. The man in the plaid and the white straw hat looks pretty resolute that he will someday get on the plane. The older woman with a dotted bag probably will stay where she is. The folk musician, I think, is a traveling sort to start with. Wherever he goes, it may matter, it may not matter. But everyone young and old there is in such close proximity to the opportunity to go and make a completely new life. And that's what Bearden is telling us. This was so contingent. They could have gone, they could have stayed. They didn't know which they were going to do. Trains figure in Bearden's work extensively, in part because he had that view of the main line, but there was also an amazing elevated track that came across the street he lived on, Graham Street, 
that went to the main line. And so the trains literally went over his house on the left, standing or practically over his house, standing on the front porch. He watched trains fly out of the sky. Yeah, there are a lot of trains in Bearden works in the book. And indeed, some of the fun is thinking through the relationships between Bearden and the railroad, both both his family's work on, on railroads, you mentioned between Charlotte and Augusta earlier. And, um, and then, of course, also trains are primary in great migration iconography. And watching his, the good trains go by is a great example of that. His father, during World War I, is not drafted, Howard Bearden, and he the entire family moves to Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, Canada, where his father works on the rails. Before that, his father had worked on the Atlantic coastline, going from New York to Florida. So there's two generations of his family who have worked on the rails. But also, I'm interested in what I think Bearden had a memory that was almost a physical memory, not a cognitive memory, not a sort of intellectual memory of trains. I think he remembered in his body being on trains. He spent his childhood on trains. And so trains, and and he also, even as he slept, these trains in watching the good trains, they would have rattled everybody in the house as they were sleeping. And so I, I feel like he experienced experiences trains in a sensory and sensual way that most of us, particularly those of us who never rode on trains very much, don't remember. Uh, Pittsburgh came up a moment ago. And within the book, there's there are a number of works that Bearden makes that reference or are, you know, air quotes cited in Pittsburgh. And of course, many that reference the South, the area around Charlotte. And you write that the artworks Bearden makes that refer to Charlotte and his life there tend to be matriarchal, and that the works he makes of and apparently referencing Pittsburgh tend to be, quote, masculine, but not patriarchal. I thought that was interesting. Break that down a little bit for us. I think that's a really good example of how Bearden's experience influences his art, but is not specifically, explicitly autobiographical. The family home in Charlotte had generations of women and is a safe place. It's a place that he grew up really basking in the love of. He was the, his grandmother was an only child. He's you know, the, the grand, the first grandchild of this huge family basking in their love, feeling completely safe. And also he's only five when he leaves. When the family gets back from Moose Jaw, they aren't sure where to settle. Bessie and Howard leave Bearden with her mother and stepfather who run a boarding house for steel mill workers. And in these boarding houses, fortunately, there's a lot of sociological studies on black steelworkers in Pittsburgh at the time. So you can get a really good idea of what it was like. Often they had 10 people sleeping in an attic. Every bedroom was full, these old row houses. And August Wilson is inspired by Bearden's art in, in his written work, in his playwriting on Pittsburgh. 
But I think he was a lonely little boy there by himself. His grandfather and grandmother must have been incredibly busy running a boarding house. And he is separated from his parents. They've moved three times, maybe four-ish during his short life. And I think he's literally kind of, I won't say afraid of, but certainly senses that the male boarders in the boarding houses have power, that he could run awry of them, that he must be a good boy. He must behave. You feel that he's a little bit in awe of them. He admires them, but he's a little bit afraid of them as well. And part of that, again, this is where the artistic practice meets the personal history. Part of that is in the period that he's doing the Pittsburgh work, he's really exploring cubism. And, you know, cubism is a little bit scary too. So it's a sort of perfect match for the Pittsburgh experience, this sort of raw cubism. A good example of that Pittsburgh referencing work that does some things you're describing might be Mill Hand's Lunch Bucket Pittsburgh Memories from 1978. Interesting. We're talking about a lot of work in the 70s. He's clearly looking back. I love this. This is one of my favorite works, and it is what inspired August Wilson so much. The kind of perspective, the kind of cubist and rectangular perspective that he has here is, is present. In a lot of his collages, he's mixing material. He's looking out windows at scenes as he does later in the South. But there are three things in this that I find amazing. One that's is the heartbroken rocking chair in the bottom right. It looks like a heart that has been broken. The other is the powerful figure in this scene is the mill worker who is reaching for his lunch bucket. bucket. He's got, you know, Bearden loved enormous hands. He's got the most enormous of hands. The woman looks exhausted, as you surely would be if you were running a boarding house for mill workers. And then in the lower left hand at the bottom, I had looked at this for a very long time before I saw that there's a little boy. There's a small person. I can't be sure it's a boy, but it's a small person cuddled up under the chair where the man in the black suit sits. So I think to me, Bearden may himself not have been able to depict this, but you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to figure out that these are emotions and memories that are still present somewhere that he's able to access. Before we kind of advance into World War II, at least in Bearden's life and after, we of course, we're bouncing around in the work because Bearden did. You mentioned gardens in the South a little bit earlier ago. I think when we were talking about tomorrow, I will be far away. And I wanted to raise another one of these late 70s works that you write about, a collaged work of Maudel Sleet. Who was Sleet? How does he portray her? And how might that be a really good work for understanding the tension between memory and experience that runs through the book? I spent years looking for Maudel Sleet. I'm now convinced myself that I found her, but I'm not absolutely sure that the neighbor who 
he depicts as Model Sleet is the the person I found. He can't really remember Model Sleet either. There was a woman who grew things out of the ground. He says that she performed magic and that sometimes her vegetables, they would go and get her vegetables. He says, I've done her about two or three times, and each time the facial characteristics are different. I wouldn't recognize her as the same woman, one for the other, but it's all right for my memory because I'm recalling this thing as in call and response, not as in recall. He portrays Model Sleep as in her garden many times. He portrays her as an incredibly powerful figure. And one of the reasons that I'm so attracted to her is how he gets that right. Women kept gardens, black and white women in urban settings. They kept chickens up until the 1950s in the urban South. She is wearing what women wore in their gardens, men's shoes, <laughs> brogans. You know, he loves her because her hands are incredibly powerful. And the South was so hot that people went out to garden in the what they called the cool of the evening, which is why there's this in, in for example, sunset and moonrise with Model Sleep. That he is absolutely right. That is the moment that all the women had put away the dishes and they went out to the gardens to get them ready to pick vegetables for the next day. In this collage, Model Sleet's wearing a midi blouse, which was a huge fashion fad from about 1910 to 1917. So I actually believe that he may have actually seen Model Sleet and couldn't record where. I think that these are the neighbors who lived down the street from the Bearden complex. Maud Slade, who had grown up on a farm, had married into this urban family, and the whole family later decamps from Washington, D.C., leaving Maud Slate behind and taking with him her husband, who was a jazz pianist and uh, played in Washington for years. Maud Slade eventually joins them. Bearden uses Maud Slate as representative of working Black women in the South, who included most Black women in the South, because everyone was busy. Everyone was making a way out of no way, trying to make the ground produce food, which is not that easy next to a major railroad in a major city. But as he paints, as he does collages and works with her, over the years, the vegetables get bigger, the flowers get bigger, and the woman gets smaller. And one of his biographers, Myron Schwartzman, says, well, in the last, Mario Sleet isn't even in the last painting. There's just, you know, fruits and vegetables. And Bearden says, that was Mario Sleet. So what he's remembering, what he's trying to, or what he's telling me, is he's remembering abundance. He's remembering being a magician to make things sprout up out of the ground. He's remembering a way of life that is so remote from modern America, urban America, 
that it seems almost fantastical. And he gets that magic across in all of the works on Maudel Sleet. We will come back to Maudel Sleet at the very end of our conversation. We've been talking about Bearden's memories of his past and how they surface or may have been manufactured in his work. I want to leave that for a bit to put some kind of, I don't know, semi-necessary biography in place. World War II, Samuel Coots. You write that Samuel Coots, who was a dealer, provided Bearden with a toxic combination of opportunity and plagiarism, and that Coots changed Bearden's work. And in some ways, the Bearden we know is, at least artistically, of course, is Coots and after. What did Coots do to and with Bearden, and how did he change his work? Well, let me start at the beginning. Bearden had always been an artist, drew and painted from the time that his grandmother in Pittsburgh got him an art kit when he was so lonely in the boarding house. He began drawing cartoons. He took four semesters, two years at Boston University in fine arts and studio art. So he's a trained artist. And then when he goes back to New York in 1935, he studies with George Grossi at the Art Students League, the renowned German photomontage person. And Bearden thinks he's going to be a cartoonist, but Grossi shows him that the kind of drawing he can do, the kind of line drawing, that kind of cubist, rectangular composition can be art as well. And he spends a, from about 1935 to 1941 or two working in social realism. He's still cartooning, but his cartoons for the crisis in AACP magazine and the Baltimore Afro-American become much more artistic. And he's producing social realist paintings. It's the moment for social realism. It's the latter part of the 30s. He's politically conscious. He's absolutely convinced that he bears a burden of representation, that he is a Black artist getting acknowledgement. They're not many. And when people look at his work, they see capital Black art. They see what Black artists do. So he's feeling that burden. The other thing is he's he enlists in the Army and it's World War II. How is he going to maintain an artistic career? Bearden, there's not a moment in his life when he cannot draw or paint or construct art. So he turns to watercolor, fast, transportable, working with it while he is stationed in South Carolina at Camp Croft and then later at North Carolina at Camp Davis. And it's his abstract art watercolors precede his meeting with his encounter with Samuel Coots. But that's probably the reason that Coots was interested in him. But Coots is determined to set the agenda of abstract art for New York. And he does, Coots does this in two ways. One, he says we should, during World War II, when access to Europe is closed, he says we should allow ourselves in America to explore, to do less landscapes, more European things, more cubism, more fauvism. And so Bearden's already there 
he's already doing that in part out of necessity because he's in the army, he's a sergeant. But second, it appeals to Bearden at the time because he's weary of this burden of representation. He spent two years studying the old masters. He's a trained artist in a way that gives him broad range. And he's able, without the burden of representation, to take up any kind of work to produce work that's going to show what he calls the universal human condition. And he believes that semi-abstraction will do that. Kutz's journey is different. Kutz represents Bearden, but Bearden is never really on, Kutz had represented people in two ways. One, he paid for their living expenses. The other, he represented their art. Bearden didn't, he didn't pay for Bearden's living expenses. Bearden was not enthralled to him. But ultimately, Kutz moves from semi-abstraction to intra-subjective art, which means you don't need any representation. Your art can be completely abstract and reflect what you feel inside. For Bearden, that's very hard because what he feels inside is a combination of his experience as a Black man, his family's prominence, his migratory life his study of classical art, and what would that be for in intrasubjective? He's not a particularly intrasubjective kind of guy. He's got plenty going on without probing the depths of, of his psyche or his id. So he leaves Coots before Coots leaves him. He starts chafing under this non-representational art. In 1947, but by 1949, Rothko and Mother that's who Coots is pushing and representing. And Bearden's kind of at sea. He's a single man in his late 30s, early 40s. He's painted and worked in several different ways and doesn't really know what to do next. So at the end of his abstract period, he goes to France. And then comes back and is relatively, feels as if he doesn't know what to paint. Feels as if he doesn't know how to paint because his method has always been integral to what he wants to express. Those two things worked together for him. So he's lost and doesn't paint, doesn't draw for two or three years from probably 52 to 54, 55 after a period of not painting between 52 and 54 or 55, how does Bearden arrive at collage? And I guess, is it fair to think of there as being a, you know, quote, first collage, as it were? He meets Nanette Rohan, who is active in the arts in New York. And his doctor has put him on a serious antidepressant. Before his doctor started him on what were probably opioids for depression and then moved to Milltown, the Hollywood drug. And she says, I don't think there's anything wrong with you except these drugs. And so he goes off and things begin to clear for him. I believe probably she was right. I think he had a physical, I think he had like indigestion and they said he was having a you know, a panic attack and drugged him up pretty heavily as they tended to do in the mid fifties. So as that clears, he tries to regain his artistic practice 
in a really interesting way. He makes photostats of old master's work to look at their composition. And when you do that, it's a little bit like collage because you see the shapes and the lines and and not the colors and, and not the complexity, but the structure. And of course, remember, George Grossi thinks he claims and certainly contributed a great deal to, he claims that he invented montage painting. He, in World War I, you know, that he's the first person to clip things out and draw over them, et cetera. So he's got two artistic imperatives, copying the old masters and his drawing and experience with Grotti that lead him to collage. He wants to start slowly and certainly his first collages are sort of slow. I, They are not complex. He's not painting over them as he does later, but he's he's inspired by Matisse and also Matisse's own trajectory in art from Fauvism to, to later. He's, he's influenced to leave space, to use color as structure, and that's most easily done through collage or easily done through collage. Let me jump in for a quick second. The work you identify in the book as possibly being a first collage is Harlequin, maybe probably in the book, Harlequin from 1956. And as you mentioned, Matisse, it's worth noting that he's taking a Picasso subject and doing it in a Matisse way. (laughs) That's Um, right. with, 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 With color and and the rest. Probably his first collage is his 1956, or at least the first one that we have now, is uh, his 1956 Harlequin. Clearly, he's well-versed in Picasso's work. Coutts has turned to representing Picasso in America. And his Harlequin is amazingly lively. Bearden is keen to get movement into his collages. And it's so apparent in this first one. He's also not a sad, morose Harlequin. To me, this is a celebration of of Bearden finding his art again, going off the uh, tranquilizers, using color as space, he says, I use, and space as color, leaving white to, to denote structure. The Harlequin is literally sort of dancing, it looks like to me. He does others, and then he begins working on blowing them up into what he calls projections. He did that in order to to teach himself how to do collage, yet the actual projection, the actual blow up, the blow, blowing up of them reveals such interesting details that Cordier and Ekstrom exhibit those and his career takes off again. We've talked a lot about the work Bearden made in the 1970s because I think those, in part because I think those works are really central to your book's thesis. But also in the 1970s, Bearden begins to spend time in the Caribbean and South America. And I thought it was really interesting that you note that this is about when he begins to look backward in his work. So when he's spending time in the Caribbean and South America is when he's looking at Charlotte of the 1910s and 20s, Pittsburgh of the 20s, Harlem of the 30s. Is this a man late in life looking back? Is this coincidence? Is it cause and effect? How might we think of him looking back at the time he's literally physically going abroad to the Caribbean and South America? 
the first time I went to Europe, I said, oh, I want to learn so much about Europe. And the person I said that to said, I think you'll learn so much about yourself. And I think that's certainly what happened to Bearden in France. And it's certainly what happened to Bearden in St. Martin. But also his vision has changed. St. Martin, it was Nanette Bearden's parents' home. They were immigrants from there. The color strikes him as so both exotic and familiar. And I think that he pulls in that color when he's thinking back on his memories. When you're a child, of course, things look incredibly colorful to you. You're struck by color. You're struck by specificity. You could look at a worm for an hour, you know, that sort of thing. St. Martin sort of refreshes that for Bearden. I think it gives him access to a period when things were brighter, when literally brighter when he was a child and enables him to literally pull that through into his work. Again, that's one of those mean, sure, I'm projecting there. I'm moved from North Carolina to New Haven, which (laughs) never was a day sunny as it had been in Charlotte again. But I also think that's one of the really interesting things about Bearden is that because he never stops working and he works wherever he is, his art absorbs where he is. He says, when I'm in New York, I'm still in St. Martin when he comes back and forth. And also in St. Martin, he can't do collage. He does watercolors because you can't take all the equipment and all the clippings, but then he comes back and makes the collages alongside the watercolors that he had made in St. Martin. Bearden's final known collage is from 1987. It's called Moonlight Prelude, features a train and its searchlight moving through the middle of the picture at an angle. It features some nature, it features some people, features a red ground, a blue sky, and white clouds. Red, white, and blue always mean something in American painting or in American art. Why is what Bearden shows in what is his final known collage made 100 days before his death significant? I think it's significant for for two reasons. One is in the artistic representation, well, three reasons. In the artistic representation, all of the elements of the past 20 years of work are there. The train, the trestle the odalesque, the folk musician sitting in a chair playing, birds flying. That's logical, but it's also been simplified into a kind of statement. These colors are as vivid as I can make them. These people are as happy as I can make them. He kept he kept working even though he had bone cancer and he had an assistant he in in the microhistory of this work his assistant got the train trestle wrong three times and bearden made him scrape it down and and put it back just so just perfect the way that he remembered it from 402 graham street charlotte north carolina yet you see saint martin in that painting You see the colors, you see the lush tropical setting. And 
I think the title, I'm not, I don't know that he titled it. He often didn't title a lot of his work. But Moonlight Prelude is a great valedictory for someone who knows they're going to die. He had to be carried up the steps to his studio by the time this was finished. He knows he's dying. And this is what he left us. I want to wrap up where you wrap up the book. Earlier on, we talked about Maudel Sleet and the garden she kept two blocks from Bearden's home in Charlotte and his memories of it and how over a period, his memories of her and her garden manifested themselves in his work. What became today of Maudel Sleet's garden and what does that kind of reveal to us both about the passage of time and the power of memory? The thriving Black neighborhood, which was integrated black and white in the 1890s and early 1900s, is completely paved over for the most part. Bearden's Kennedy family complex is part of a parking lot. But Mario Sleet's garden would have been covered up by the Bank of America Stadium, where the Carolina Panthers play. It would have been completely obliterated by artificial, fake, green, colorful Southern life that is so far removed from what Bearden saw, so far removed from the history of Charlotte that it seems impossible. It seems almost exotic. But I end the book by saying, Bearden mourned the loss of his Charlotte. He went back for an exhibition staged by the Mint Museum in 1970, and he reflected this way. He once said of Charlotte, all of this is gone. The people are gone. The people who thought that way are gone. So I end the book by saying, no, I still think this way. I I still believe that you can see the past, even through the paved-over present, I'm convinced that one Sunday afternoon while watching a Panthers game, which I do watch, I'll see one of Sleet's squash vines sprout on the 50-yard line, and it will grow magically, monstrously, until it covers the field. To me, that entire reimagining, revisioning, recapturing the past is what I wanted to do in this book, but more largely what I wanted to do as a historian. A very American story. Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.